Welcome to part two of this interview with Hiram Lewis about studying history and how that can change our ability to see things as they really are and live right now. As you know, you are a history professor, I'd like to dive in a little bit on the value of history and just generally, what do you want people to know about studying history and the value of that? Well, we ran a marketing campaign for history here a few years back. And the slogan that the marketing team came up with was live a million lives. That's what history does. The way the Book of Mormon describes it is it says, I think it was Mosiah talking to his sons and he said, we keep records, right? We, we keep history and we study history because it enlarges the memory of the people, enlarges the memory. That's a great way to put it. So maybe the most concise description as to why to study history is that it's experienced by proxy. And experience is why we're here in mortality. You gain experience, you learn, you grow, you become more like God. And if you gain experience by proxy, you grow more. And so when you gain the experiences of those who came before, it doesn't only help you to build on their successes and avoid their mistakes, but ultimately their experiences become yours such that your perspective is expanded. In other words, I can never be a 13th century Chinese peasant or a 17th century Japanese samurai or a hunter in, in 17th century Africa, but I can get their experiences by proxy and therefore have my own perspective expanded. And what the data shows, I mean, it's, it's very hard to tease out this correlation, but the data does suggest that innovative people are those with a breadth of experience. And so the more experience you have, the more innovative you're going to be, the more connections you'll be able to draw, the more you'll be able to think analogically and therefore think creatively. So I think studying history makes people more creative. It helps them to think outside the box because they expand their box through experience by proxy. Our own consciousness and our own experience is small. It's you know 80 years in a, a very bounded time and space. But history is the closest thing we have to time travel. And of course, it's also space travel. You can travel across time and space when you crack open a history book and you can expand your experiences beyond your own lifetime. And that expanded experience has a lot of benefits. And of course, being more innovative and being able to think outside of the box is just one of them. Wow, that is beautiful. I, I really love how you described that. Just as a follow-up question for that, you know, for people that look at a study of history as kind of this amorphous thing that's outside of their, their practical experience, how would someone get started in, in studying history? And, and do you have any pointers that's to what direction to take just as a regular individual in our society. Well, that's the great thing about history. <laughs> just what the historian Neil Ferguson says. So the great thing about history is that anybody can do it. I mean, you know, you go to Barnes and Noble, the, the chemistry section will be like three books long. The statistics section will be like six, whereas the history section will be thousands and thousands of books long. It's popular. It's fun. Anybody can do it. It doesn't. The great thing about history is that there aren't barriers to entry to study Mathematics or chemistry, there's huge barriers to entry. You have to have all kinds of expertise and you have to follow a particular pattern and you have to have access to laboratories and things like that in order to be familiar in the field such that you can become an expert in it. But in history, anybody can. And there are you know, thousands of potential entry points. Um, a lot of people get into history by watching historical movies or reading historical fiction or watching the History Channel. So I don't think there's a wrong way to get into history. I would say there are better and worse ways Though the History Channel, the problem there isn't that it, it's, it's bad, but it just, one, it focuses on the sensational and speculative. 
and also on the marginal, right? It's almost all military history, whereas military history is pretty marginal to the field of history more generally. It's not that it's not important or fun, but it's just not central. It's just one part of history, not the whole thing, like the History Channel teaches it. And furthermore, they they do a lot of, you know, what they call history is often history's mysteries, and they go into things that may have been, but isn't well-documented and, and widely accepted. Interesting, but not going to be the most useful and not going to give you the experience by proxy that I'm talking about, because it's not as grounded in reality. So I think if you are going to you know, you want to get into history systematically, I would say start big. I think it works better to go into history instead of doing kind of the impressionistic approach where you, a dot of paint here, a dot of paint here, a dot of paint here until the picture emerges. I think it's better to do kind of the paint by numbers approach where you start with the big picture. You get a big outline. You read a, an introductory history of the United States or you read kind of a, a, a survey of world history. And from there, you then go filling in the gaps to, to go into the details. It seems to be the better way because then you have a big picture and a framework and an organization in which to fit the new knowledge you gain. The kind of little piece approach, then you don't have the broader context that you'll need. Uh, that's making a lot of sense to me. I, I appreciate that because that, that has been a personal question of mine as well is how do I get a do a study of history. I actually asked uh, ChatGPT that question and <laughs> got got a couple of suggestions that way. But I love I love that image of a paint by number. And then bringing it to how your study of history affects uh, your life. How do you feel that uh, a knowledge of history affects your ability to understand the world? right now and see things as they really are? A couple ways. The first way is what historians are really good at, and this can be both a blessing and a curse, is constructing narratives. And that's ultimately what all scholarship is about in some way or another. So, you know, in in in, in physics or whatever, the narrative might be an equation or, or, a, or a very precise theory. In history, narrative is more literal. You're constructing a story. Some people think that history is just what happened. I remember there was a, you know, a big controversy a few years back about, you know, the history standards and what should we teach in high school. And the uh, political commentator Rush Limbaugh said, well, this isn't complicated. Just teach what, what happened. I don't mean to pick on Rush Limbaugh, but that was kind of a naive thing to say because, because it, we're always going to express what happened in certain, within certain frameworks and within certain narratives. And we're going to exclude some things and not talk about others. I mean, if you think about it, you know, since you and I have been talking, Jacob, more has happened then we could spend an entire lifetime learning about. So the idea that history is just what happened, it's, it's clearly not. I mean, Zhang in, in, in Shanghai just tied his shoes. Do you really want to study that in a history class? I, I don't think so. So you have to filter things out in terms of significance and focus. What are you going to focus on historically? And so historians, we have to construct narratives. And that's a valuable thing. It's a valuable skill in any field you go into. If you're into marketing, you got to market a product. You need to construct a narrative about this product and why people want to buy it, right? If you go into business consulting, you have a business, you've looked at the data and, and, the, and, the, and the profit loss statements, and you've interviewed the employees and you've looked and examined the different parts of the business. You have to take that data and construct a narrative about it, about how this business can be more profitable. So no matter what you do, you're from screenwriting to business consulting, you're constructing narratives. And so in as much as historians take documents and we take historical data and we impose order on it, that is a good skill. It's a valuable skill. It's even a godly skill, right? God says, yonder is matter unorganized. The historian says, yonder is, is documentary evidence unorganized. Let us organize it into a narrative. And that's what we do. Now, now narratives can be false. Narratives can be better and worse. And so there's a reason because narrative is so powerful and because historians do construct narrative with such 
freedom and even such frivolity, there has arisen a school of history called postmodernism. It's a vague term, but I think it serves our purposes here, which says all history is just narratives and no narrative is any better than any narrative because everybody has their language and their linguistic framework and therefore their conceptual framework. And so everybody's narrative is going to be different and perspectivized and written from a particular standpoint. And therefore, all narratives are of equal value. That's one extreme. We might call that the relativist point of view. In the 19th century, there was a popular point of view that said it was called positivism. And that was the idea that, no, there is the truth and I can have it. I have the truth. It's like a gold nugget. You find it and here it is and it's done. We've got it. The positivist and the relativists are missing some. What the positivist gets correct is that there is such a thing as truth. It's not that everybody's truth is equal and there is no truth and whatever you want to believe is true. That's obviously not correct. There is a truth. And the positivists write about that. But the positivists didn't stop there. They said there is a truth and I have it. The relativist says there is no truth and nobody has it. The correct perspective is there is a historical truth, but nobody has. And when I say nobody has it, that's not relativist because nobody has the final truth. It's not like a gold nugget that we have and now we treasure. It's you get more truth. So Adam is seeking further light and knowledge, not final light and knowledge. That's, that's, the, that's the dilemma of mortality. And so what scholarship is about is not finding the final truth, a la the positivists, nor is it to just revel in a perspective and celebrate you know, relative perspectives, a la the Scholarship should be about pushing back and getting closer to the truth. And so the historical method then is about constructing narratives, but narratives that are grounded in the facts. You don't just make them up. And then you're willing to submit your narratives to testing. You're willing to hold them contingently. You're willing to say, this is how I see this event for now, but let's continue to look at the evidence and see if this narrative is falsified and if we can develop a better narrative, a better story that fits the facts better. So you're always holding it contingently. So you might have a historical narrative and you say, this looks pretty good. It fits the facts. And as I keep learning more and more, it keeps strengthening it. But you're humble enough to say, a time might come when I'll have to discard that narrative and look at a better one. And that's what celebra- that's what separates the, 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 those who use the critical method from the relativists and from the positivists. Unlike the relativists, they believe there's a truth and they're striving towards the truth. But unlike the positivists, they don't believe they ever have it and they're humble enough to surrender and to test and to discard and to see other points of view as having validity. So I think the, I'm not sure if anybody's used this in general conference, but I think it's a terrific analogy that you, you're, you and all your listeners are aware of, which is the blind Indians and the elephant. So it's an, it's an old Indian parable that you have you know, all these blind men and they walk up to an elephant and one of them touches the leg and says, this thing that I'm touching is a tree trunk. It's a tree. And then another blind man comes along and touches the tail and says, no, 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 you're crazy. It's a broom. And another one comes along and touches the tusk and says, no, you're crazy. It's a spear. And another one comes along and touches the, the trunk and says, it's a, it's a snake. Now, who's, so on the one hand, the relatives would say, well, there is no elephant. There's no truth. Well, clearly there is an elephant. There is a truth. But the positivist would be one of those people saying, I've got the truth and it's a spear. No. See, y'all have part of the truth. There's different perspectives. And so what we are doing as scholars is we're saying, okay, I feel the elephant this way. Let me come over and feel that. Ah, the tail. You're right. So we got to combine these two perspectives and come to a higher thing. And are we ever going to have a full knowledge of the elephant? No, we're blind. They're never, at the very least, going to know the color of the elephant. And maybe they'll be, you know, never be high enough to touch the ears or something, but they can come to greater knowledge of the elephant through dialogue and through continued inquiry. 
And that's how we get at things as they really are. We'll never be at things totally as they really are. That requires revelation. But in the realm of empirical scholarship, whether it's science, political science, history, economics, all these different disciplines, it relies not on revelation, but it relies, relies on the empirical method and the critical method that Sir Karl Popper taught us. And that is the investigation and willingness to discard hypotheses as we construct them. That is a, a very powerful way to put it. And I'm so glad that you you mentioned those ideas because it's something that we do talk about and think about a lot, at least I do personally and, and on this podcast, is the difference between a scientific approach and you know, a relativistic approach and then also a godly approach to things where we actually can see the see things. And I, it seems like you're speaking of studying history almost in a scientific way where, where we have these theories of history and then we prove them more and more with evidence and they slowly start to form a better picture of what's really happening, right? Correct. I make no distinction between the historian's method and the scientific method. They're ultimately the same. I mean, I mean, obviously, natural scientists have a huge advantage over social scientists, which is they get to do experiments. <laughs> Historians can't do experiments. I mean, it would be nice if an economist could, you know, uh, take a test tube and here's the economy and then another test tube and then put a few drops of economic stimulus in and, ooh, the economy grew faster with the economic stimulus. We can't do that. We can't run experiments. Now, we might be lucky enough to find natural experiments, but for the most part, we're just stuck with, with, you know, looking backwards and trying to do the best we can with data and just gathering more data, but we can never hold variables constant the way that physical scientists can. You know, you can figure out if penicillin works by simply having two test tubes with the same medium, the same bacteria, the same temperature, keep all the variables the same, and then just introduce one new variable to one of the test tubes. And so any changes you observe between the two test tubes will be attributed causally to whatever variable you changed. So you can perform tests in natural sciences that make me really jealous. We can't do that as historians. Now that makes history very conjectural and it makes history a lot of disagreement in history the way there's not in bacteriology or the way there's not in you know, physics or biology, these more precise sciences where you can run tests. But in some ways it makes history more vibrant. In some ways it makes history more interesting, uh, but it is a limitation. But when you get down to it, the method we're using of constructing hypotheses through observations and then testing those hypotheses and being willing to discard them, that ultimately is correct. Now, we don't do our tests with, all, you know, with, with manipulating variables, not that kind of testing, but you can get further data and say, ah, I was wrong. You can, it's the same method of falsification. And so the scientific method is the rational method, ergo the rational method is the historical method and it's analogous or I would say even coterminous with the scientific method. Powerful. Before we get to our last question, I like to invite you to, if there is to share, if there's anything else you'd like to share or any other thoughts on why history is important and how that affects our worldview and maybe why it's important right now. And also any additional thoughts about anything else we've, we've talked about, about just finding our ability to contribute to the world. Well, studying history not only gives you experience by proxy, it also gives you skills. And so the students in my classes, they are required to do rigorous reading of historical documents, of historical monographs. And this reading is teaching them to comprehend information. So our world, we live in an information age. What skill could be more valuable than comprehending information? Well, there's two other skills that might be even more important than that. One is creating new information. And, and you create new information through analytical abilities and critical thinking abilities. You can consider old paradigms and find the flaws in them and construct new paradigms. 
and, and new theories and new ideas and new business plans and new software codes or whatever it happens to be, creating new stuff. So in an information age, creating new information, those are the thinking skills that we teach our students. So with our students, they're creating new information and new historical theses and theories out of historical data or historical documents. But I think those skills transfer to the job where they could be creating new marketing plans. They could be creating a new human resource methods or whatever it happens to be. So creating information is another crucial skill in the information age. And then lastly, communicating information. History students learn to write. We require them to do a lot of rigorous nonfiction writing. Now, English majors will do more writing, but a lot of their writing, maybe even most of it, will be more creative and not tethered to evidence and facts the way that historical writing is. So I think as a history major, you're going to get the skills of reading, thinking, and writing, i.e. understanding information, creating information, and communicating information, maybe better than any other major. So a study of history gives you experience by proxy, but it also gives you skills that are the most valuable skills to have in our information age. And they pay dividends, certainly in a career, but I think they you know, have uh, eternal significance too. Wow. That's uh, that's very important to to recognize that, and and to all of those skills are are definitely essential right now. So thank you for sharing that. The last question I want to ask you is the name of our podcast is Live Right Now, and so I want to ask you what does it mean to you to live right right now or to live right now? Well, technology, of course, we live at the most technologically advanced point in history, and some people think that settles the matter. They say, oh. Well, technology means progress and progress means well-being and therefore humans today live better than they ever have. That may be true on a global scale. I think probably humans in general live better than they ever have, but I don't think Americans live better than we ever have. There's a lot of data to suggest that Americans have become more miserable, it, not only because you can look at happiness data. Some people don't put much stock in this data, but I think it's probably at least roughly accurate. And there's a lot of data to suggest that Americans are just less happy than they used to be. You just use a survey question write your well-being on a scale of one to 10. And those numbers are down. And you say, well, we have all this technology and all this wealth. It might be because of the technology and wealth. Technology is simply, I think Thoreau said, technology is improved means to unimproved ends. And so if our ends are bad, technology simply gives us more ability to fulfill those ends. And a lot of our ends these days are indeed bad. There's uh, way more time wasting than there used to be. Technology enables time wasting. You can talk about how miserable comparisons will make you and pride makes you. Technology enables those comparisons. Think of how social media just does a number on the mental health and well-being of Americans today. People who spend their time on social media are just utterly miserable. Would they have been better off living 50 years ago before the internet? You better believe it. I, I firmly believe that. I think all the evidence suggests that that's true. So this idea that we have more technology and therefore we are better off is simply not correct. Now, having said that, if you have the improved ends, if you use the technology correctly, it can be a blessing. Therefore, do people who have the correct ends and who have the correct perspective and who, who are using the technology correctly, are they living better than any people in history? I think they have. So I think what we're seeing in 21st century America is a hollowing out of the middle. I think if you have, or have the habits of life, the habits of happiness, strong personal relationships, a, a vocation where you feel like you're doing meaningful work. You, you have a, a faith that gives your life meaning and gives you a sense of purpose. If you have those things, you are going to be happier than people who had those things 100 years ago. If you don't have those things, I think you will be less happy than the people 100 years ago because you will simply use the technology to indulge pornography, pride, envy, whatever the, the vices are. 
So yeah, it's an interesting time to be living because there is that hollowing out effect. There's a hollowing out of the middle. I think people are probably, Americans are probably happier and more miserable than they have ever been. The happier, probably more happy. The miserable, probably more miserable. But on average, all the evidence suggests that we Americans are less happy on net than we were 50, 60 years ago. So, so we really need to focus on what matters most. And then, then our technology will enable us to to have those things better. Well, Hiram Lewis, thank you so much for everything that you shared. I, I believe that you share some very powerful perspectives and insights and perspectives that others wouldn't have not having your life experience, or maybe they would get those experiences and insights another way. But thank you for bringing that all together for us today. And I really appreciate everything you shared. Hope you have a great rest of your day today. Thanks, Jim. It's been my pleasure. Thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of Live Right Now with Hiram Lewis, a history professor at BYU-Idaho. I hope you consider the thoughts that he shared on seeing things as they really are and how a study of history can help us do that. Please join us next time as we continue diving into what it means to live a life of contribution and service and focusing on the things that really matter most so that we can live right and live right now.